Hello, this is the Eclipse Viewer, the podcast dedicated to the Criterion Collection's Eclipse series of lost, overlooked, and forgotten classic films. My name is David Blakesley, and we are here on episode number 42 as we continue uh, our survey through this uh, interesting, enigmatic, uh, sometimes mysterious uh, collection of films that uh, Criterion has released on DVD-only, bare-bones editions as part of their Eclipse series. And uh, as always, I'm joined by Trevor Barrett. Hello, Trevor. How are you doing? I'm doing great, David. How are you? I'm doing very good. I'm I'm very uh, intrigued to see how this conversation turns out. We are here to talk about uh, Eclipse Series. Oh, my gosh. What's the number? Eclipse Series 19, <laughs> Chantal Ackerman, Ackerman in the 1970s. <laughs> And we are joined by a very special guest, uh, Lady P from the FlixWise podcast. Uh, very delighted to be uh, hosting you this time. I've had a, a great privilege of guesting on your uh, FlixWise podcast a couple times, but it's really nice to return the favor and have you on board. So good morning, Lady P. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's, yeah. a, it's a delight to be here. So it'll be an interesting experience to have someone else ask the questions. Yeah, have you done yeah. much? Have you done much guesting on other podcasts before? I've done a couple of appearances, but uh, I'm used to I'm used to being in control. We'll, well see how this goes. Well, we we will be very very egalitarian, very cooperative, uh, very okay. uh, receptive to uh, you know being good hosts and, and minding our manners as you okay. join us. Uh, I'm pretty deferential a, myself, so you can right. probably yeah. take control if it were up to me. Okay, I might. I just might do that. <laughs> if you see the opportunity, go see. ahead and grab the reins. Yeah, okay. David and Trevor, two really nice guys. You know. Yeah, uh, I do want to. I just got a little shout out and credit to Aaron West. I think he was pretty instrumental in introducing uh, you and I, uh, Lady P, yeah. uh, to each other. And uh, and uh, we uh, first kind of made our online acquaintance. Well, I guess probably did a little bit of chatting with uh, email and, and Twitter and stuff like that. But then we uh, had a conversation to talk about Jacques Dati's playtime a couple months ago. And mm-hmm. uh, just more recently, we uh, had a good discussion. and. We talked about uh, Abbas Kurastami's close-up as uh, kind of a follow-up to uh, my first appearance there, and it was it was another really great conversation uh, with Paul Cobb, and and uh, it has not yet been released as of this recording, but I imagine it might be out. I don't know, depending on how how things turn around here. But yeah, Lady P, I've really enjoyed getting to know you. Uh, why don't you tell us just a little bit about the Flixwise podcast? What what's the idea behind that, and and just a little bit about yourself, uh, just for viewers or listeners who may not have heard your work before. Although I'm sure you'll probably draw a few folks over our way who have never listened to the Eclipse Viewer before. Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, sure. Yeah, I am the host and producer of the Flixwise podcast, as you mentioned, um, which is. A show that is primarily devoted to going through the top 250 greatest movies of all time, according to the Sight and Sound Critics poll. Um, But in a larger sense, the reason that I wanted to take on that project is because I'm fascinated by who and which, who makes the film canon and which films primarily occupy the favorite slots and why they're chosen and just I'm interested in re-examining what we consider great cinema Um, and so 
the critics poll seemed like a pretty good place to start. And uh, since I began, it's sort of branched out into other things, but that's primarily what it's about. Um, yeah. And also, I mean, I guess the bigger, the larger reason that I started it was so that I could have an excuse to talk to fellow film nerds. And in that regard, it has been very successful because it's allowed me to, you know, meet fine folks like you. And now I get to be a guest on your podcast. So that is an enormous privilege. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued by this idea of sort of this extended study of what you might call sort of cinematic privilege, like who sort of mm-hmm. automatically gets canonized or who who has been kind of uh, you know, sheltered in this in this position of must see cinema from, you know, you know, years, decades past. And uh, yeah, that's a that's a fascinating topic, because I think there is a lot of room for debate as to what makes a film, you know, greatest of all time, especially when you get to that upper tier of like the top 25 out of all the many, you know, tens or even hundreds of thousands of feature films that have been made. Uh, what, what sets those yeah. apart? And, and is it, is it proper to really just regard that list as a settled thing or, or can it be even radically overhauled where, maybe films that are in the top hundred now might not even be considered worthy of that spot. So yeah, I've appreciated kind of following that flicks journey as you kind of your work your way and you're getting pretty close to the top. You're in the, what, the top 40 ish neighborhood. Yeah, now? I'm top almost, almost uh, out of the top 50 getting there. So. Which, it's hard to believe. Yeah. Um, and I, I, it's been hard. Some occasionally it's difficult because you really sometimes I don't respond very well to movies that are considered among the greatest of all time. Yeah, hence um, our most recent conversation. Right. <laughs> yeah, not a bad thing um, at all. Yeah, so I mean, I, I, and also it's a matter of just challenging myself and other listeners. Men, I welcome those who think I'm wrong to tell me I'm wrong. Um, in a polite way, preferably, but you know, um, just let's, uh, start some debate. Right. Yeah. And I also appreciate what you say about the social aspect, just the chance to connect with, with film nerds and, and movie buffs and people with, mm-hmm. with not just opinions, but also the ability to, 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 to talk it through and to mm-hmm. back up their argument and to say interesting things and make, uh, uh, unique observations about what they see when they sit down and watch uh, one of these, you know, classic movies. Uh, whether it's a revered, you know, t- you know, top hundred of all time, or uh, just something unusual and and uh, you know, kind of quirky from out of the vaults that might have been overlooked, or or even things that are well known but uh, also have been, you know, uh, you know, kind of almost relegated to cliche territory the, the same things right. have been said about so them so many times that it's like well is there a unique angle is there even a contradictory uh perspective so i you know i just right. want to recommend to people who have followed the eclipse viewer and maybe appreciate what trevor and i do uh Flixwise is a very worthy destination as well and i certainly encourage people to subscribe and follow because you, you you don't just strictly state with a, a sight and sound list either you you kind of no, go off in other no. directions too yeah no i mean is there a reason why clueless is not included in the sight and sound list and uh i ask that question very sincerely in fact i have a whole podcast about it so um yeah it's more it's yes it is the canonical you know your citizen canes your every movie jean-luc godard has ever made um But it's also some of our listener favorites, um, my personal favorites, and 
So uh, while there might not be an eclipse set on Amy Heckerling's early movies, um, I think that st- uh, still some of her movies, you know, if, if Clueless is a landmark film from the '90s, uh, why why not include it? Or at least not at least let's talk about why it's not included. Yeah, it's um, a, it, that is yeah. a cultural touchstone for literally millions of people. I mean, a lot of people mm-hmm. who have very, you know, intelligent <laughs> views of life and the world around them uh, derive a lot of meaning and value from that film. So why not? Yeah. Just because it was a, you know, Cineplex favorite and because it has sort of a, a frothy pop culture sensibility doesn't mean there's not greatness to be found there. So, yeah. Excellent. Well, while we are here, I guess just to kind of zero in on our target a little bit, we are here to talk about Chantal Ackerman in the 70s. Uh, This Mm -hmm. was an Eclipse uh, box set that was released back in 2009, right around the same time. I don't know if it was the exact same day or not, but uh, Criterion also released uh, Chantal Ackerman's recognized classic masterpiece and this is a i guess a future episode of flick flies i think it ranks as number 35 on the sight and sound uh, all-time list uh, jean dillman 23k de Commerce 1080 brussels and nicely uh, done thank you very much <laughs> i, I practice that <laughs> uh, this is a this is a uh, kind of a landmark film uh starring delphine serig and and uh a, a woman, by the way, an actor who really had an incredible resume of, of uh, uh, appearances in some of the great art house classics of the 60s and 70s. Um, but, yeah, so, Lady P, we've brought you on because uh, you have a recognized affinity for Chantal Ackerman. And and I, I'm saying Chantal Ackerman. Let me, let me just say uh, clarify that. Uh, I've been calling her Chantal Ackerman for you know, years. I mean, ever since I first saw this set. But but I recently watched uh, Salt Ma Ville, which is her very first film. It's a, about a 12-minute short film that she made as a teenager back in 1968. And uh, it it's really fascinating because it, it kind of sets the stage for so much that follows. It's, it's Chantal um, in an apartment kind of doing some unusual things. And I actually will post a link to that or I'll embed the clip into our show notes. Uh, but at the very end of that little film she uh she gives kind of verbal voiceover credits probably did not have the budget for you know printed text uh, scrolling or anything like that so she just records an audio track across some some black leader and she pronounces her name Chantal Carmen uh in her you know very dear little voice i mean she's very young and she's a very petite woman and and had a kind of a a high pitched voice and so Chantal Carmen is how she pronounced her name so i'm going to try my best <laughs> to to honor that and 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 uh you know, kind of relinquish my habit of Chantal Ackerman, which might be the way that most of our listeners even still refer to her. So we may fumble a little bit here and there, but that's why I throw the little uh, emphasis on that syllable there. But Pauline, let me, or Lady P, let me tell you, ask you a little <laughs> bit about about um, your your affinity for Chantal and, and her works. I mean, she's a, you know, an iconic filmmaker, highly influential, and and uh, revered, and of course, uh, you know her her life came to an end last year. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. But I'd like to hear a little bit more of just your take on on her work and what it's meant to you uh, uh, over whatever length of time you've been familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm sort of um, a latecomer to Ackerman's work, um, and I guess it really, you know, I I think seen clips of Jean Dielman when I was in film school. And um, 
I was intrigued, but I never bothered to watch the whole thing in full until I had to for my podcast, um, because as you mentioned, it is in the top 50 of uh, the Sign Sound list. And when I saw it, I was completely blown away. And um, it's hard to describe why. And because it feels, it has a lot of tendencies of films that I find um, frustrating. And yet there's something about the formalism mixed with this very clear autobiographical um, narrative that really spoke to me in that the 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 story the um, narrative is not it's not very it's not obvious it's not very in your face and yet something about the the rhythms of the film I found riveting. Um, despite it being a movie where very little happens. And when I learned more about Akerman's um, personal, her story and just her relationship with her mother, um, it became clear that just the affinity that I have for her uh, was kind of based on how how the overlaps in our, you know, kind of our stories are... Uh, you know, she was a young Jewish woman who decided she wanted to become a filmmaker at a young age and um, it fell in love with cinema. And her mother um, sort of – and she had this sort of deep reverence for her mother and this, the domestic spaces. And um, it's just something that I hadn't ever seen on film before um, or at least depicted in this way where there's both this – like I said, reverence for this domestic space and the work that it takes to keep up a home. Um, and also there's this kind of analysis of the neuroses and uh, anxieties of this, of sort of maintaining that lifestyle and maintaining a home. And that was something I'd never seen before. And yet it is something that all of us really have to deal with this in uh, in today's age. Um, but uh, back in the 1970s and earlier, that was uh, primarily relegated to women's work. Um, and to see that displayed in that way uh, was uh, was totally eye opening. It was just uh, a revelation to me. And so uh, when I saw it, I went about. Um, I decided to go about exploring her other work. And um, again, that same sort of the same rhythms um, and the same respect for these domestic spaces um, and just the way that she frames um, these these interiors, um, I guess it just really it spoke to me. And then um, – a few months after, I, I think it was, it might have been even less than a few months after I put out the podcast on Jean Dielman, I uh, awoke to, I, I woke up one day, uh, oh, checked my phone, checked Facebook, as one does, and uh, found, saw the news that Chantal Ackerman had died. 
And considering, you know, like I said, I felt this kind of, I felt like more than, more so, more than many filmmakers, I felt kind of a connection with her. So her, the news of her death was very devastating. And ever since I've been thinking about her a lot. And um, like I said, I really appreciate you guys having me on this episode because it's given me a chance to revisit and reaffirm all that I, you know, all that I loved about her work. So yeah, that's kind of my story. (laughs) Very, very nice. I mean, there's a lot I would like to interact with, but I'm going to give Trevor a shot to just kind of respond to anything that uh, Lady P just shared. Uh, and also maybe just uh, some of your initial thoughts on the set. Yeah, if, if Lady P says she's a recent uh, convert, I'm, I'm, I think I'm just pure novitiate. I've never, I'd never really watched anything by Chantal Ackerman, and want to start with a little bit of a confession, um, with extreme apologies to Michael Koreski in particular. I still have not watched John Dillman. Um, which I know is one of his absolute favorite films. And, uh, you know, obviously one would think that in order for me to talk about Chantal Ackerman at all, I should at least have watched that film. But it's it's a long film. I, I wasn't able to fit it in anywhere. <clears throat> so I haven't watched it yet. Um, so apologies to the listeners as well. I, I will have a blind spot there. At the same time, I do want to say that uh, this Eclipse set, uh, blew my mind. I don't. I, I don't feel like I needed to watch John Dillman to to access these particular films. Um, I really, really enjoyed this whole set. There's uh, definitely a, a a switch I had to make in my mind um, because uh, her films are are quite slow, deliberately slow, uh, deliberately zoom in on mundane moments that you know most other filmmakers would cut out for fear that you know the audience would become bored and slip away or think that it was just absolute self-indulgent um, uh, junk but there's something about the sensibility uh, of these films that really really um, affected me <clears throat> and as i was getting through the set it reminded me of one of my favorite authors who's alice monroe um, Canadian author. Um, mm-hmm. She's in her 80s now, but has been, you know, writing for the last 50 years, basically. And in one of the books she wrote in the 1970s, so you know, c- concurrently with uh, the work that Chantal Ackerman is doing here, um, it's a book called "The Lives of Girls and Women." Um, there's a quote that really struck home with me with this um, with the Chantal Ackerman set. Uh, She says, people's lives in Jubilee as elsewhere were dull, simple, amazing, and unfathomable, deep caves paved with kitchen linoleum. And I just thought, you know, I know... Kitchen linoleum right there. Those (laughs) two words. Yeah. They're not... about the same thing, Monroe is is you know quite a bit older than Eckerman was at that time. Um, she was a mother. She had actually been divorced by this time, but she was an artist who was you know recognizing the world around her and observing it very closely to the point where she's able to really zoom in on you know a lot of the poignant moments in our life don't happen because of some magnificent event or tragic event. They, that definitely plays a role, but. You know, we, we pass so many hours of the day, 
and our emotions are all there. Our anxieties, our, our disappointments, our frustrations, our hopes and dreams as we're doing rather mundane things. And to be able to capture that, as I think Ackerman does in these films, is really remarkable. Because as as Lady P said, there's a lot in these films that um, I would I would normally uh, really buck against. I, I would not um, accept a lot of uh, what Ackerman is doing, I think, in the hands of another filmmaker <coughs> – where you know sometimes they might just think oh they just put a camera there and recording someone walking around a room that's very self-indulgent and very stupid but there's enough setup and enough sensibility behind the camera and in front of it that it just it really works that's not to say these are you know um they don't get boring sometimes they do but that can be a part of the experience that that can be a part of feeling what these characters are going through and <coughs> excuse me I, i'm still <coughs> suffering from the effects of bronchitis um so i apologize to to listeners for my cough i'll try and edit those out um but anyway there there's just something remarkable about her ability to capture these quiet lives you know the 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 anxieties that are going on you know, inside closed doors that we often don't see on film or really even recognize around us other than we know that we ourselves go through it. You know, we, we come home at night and and sometimes that's when our inner lives really wake up and start to start to um, really become active and, and overactive and causing us all kinds of anxieties. And um, so I, I just feel like she captures that beautifully, um, and I, I agree, David. That kitchen linoleum uh, line there is is kind of perfect, especially as we as we start these films um, with the uh, with um, la chambre, where you've got that basically a, a, just a room <laughs> and uh, zooming or, or you know uh, moving the camera around the room in in 360 degrees. Uh, what is all that about? But it, and and I, I think that that's part of the key. And so these, like I say, these really worked for me. And I'm I'm very excited to watch John Dillman. Um, I'll be doing that very soon. I just uh, again um, don't feel like it was absolutely necessary to love these films, though I'm sure that um, that it will just uh, wake me up even more to to what Kerman was about and how wonderfully she was about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, well, well, it's th- like these, but more. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, and, and and it fits right into the context. It's, it's kind of like when we did the uh, the Oshima set, and Death by Hanging was sort of like plunked right in the middle there, and we sort of bookended it with the films in that box. That's very much the case with this uh, Chantal Ackerman in the seventies uh, set, where Criterion, I think, very intentionally provided this as sort of background context, but. Then again, it is its own sort of standalone product. So I think it's quite legitimate to say, well, what is your reaction just to this box set without plugging it into the fuller context of uh, Chantal Eckerman's longer career, which you know went on for you know quite a few decades, and she she did continue to, to produce a lot of work that uh, 
you know, elaborated on on the themes and the you know the the framings and the concepts behind these initial films. But this really is kind of a foundation, and I think as such, it it serves a, a very uh, important purpose. And so, yeah, let's just go ahead and keep our focus on on these five films uh, as we just talk a little bit about Chantal Ackerman herself. So, uh, for listeners who maybe don't know all the details or or maybe just want a little refresher, here's just a very brief. Uh, I guess, biographical recap. Uh, as Lady P has already uh, alluded to, uh, Chantal Ackerman was a woman of uh, Jewish heritage, uh, born in Belgium uh, to a mother who had actually personally survived the horrors of the Auschwitz concentration camps. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about uh, Natalia, I think is her name, Natalia Ackerman's personal experiences, but, you know, it's it's horrific. I mean, whatever whatever she saw, whatever she endured, uh permanent lifelong scarring effect there's just no way of of putting that completely behind you and even as the daughter of someone who who lived through such events of historic magnitude uh, as well as just kind of that you know that that life-changing um impact uh chantal carried a lot of that with her uh throughout her career uh chantal akerman was also uh you know kind of uh, a a pioneer of feminist cinema, of, of queer cinema, uh, of a lot of different, you know, styles. I mean, uh, her, her stylistic, uh, kind of minimalism was, was pretty unique, uh, kind of building upon some of the avant-garde, uh, influences that she absorbed when she moved to New York City, uh, still in her teens and her early 20s. And that's kind of the period that these films were made as she was just really developing her own voice. But one of the things that's, that's quite um, impressive is just how from the very earliest stage of her development, she already had this kind of disciplined creative vision uh, these, these films really do just build off of each other and from the fairly limited exposure i've had to her later work she continues variations on those themes so it's not just kind of you know plumbing a a certain vein or, or tradition she's she is moving into new territory in her later films she did musicals she even did kind of romantic uh, you know, comedy type things. She did documentaries, uh, biographical pictures. I mean, just the whole spectrum of of, of uh, cinematic options at her disposal. But there's always this kind of this organic connection to the, these early films. And so, uh, even though I I have much to do to fully grasp where she went over the length of her career, you know, this 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 set really you know, provide some very interesting uh, footage of of a particular place and time. And as we get into kind of talking about the individual films themselves, I'm very intrigued just to hear what Lady P and Trevor all have to say about their response because these films feel very subjective, very autobiographical, very personal. Uh, and the, what saves them from just um, being written off as sort of self-indulgence or uh, artistic whimsy is that you, you feel like Chantal Ackerman herself is a very vital and, and substantial person. She, she's, she's not just saying, Hey, look at me, look at, you know, and taking herself too seriously. She's, she's just a, a perceptive soul and somebody that 
I want to get to know better. <laughs> I, I don't maybe have the same resonance like, you know, like you, Lady P, where, you know, you, you can almost put her, yourself in her shoes. But her, her experience is, is of such magnitude and consequence. It's like, you know, even though she's different from me in many respects, I, I want to know more about her life, about her world, about her perception, and enlarge myself as a, as a human being as a result of that encounter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I should say, while I do feel this kinship, I think it would be kind of um, just irresponsible of me to claim that I am in any way like her <laughs> because <Okay>. she's <laughs> an amazing genius and uh I you know well I feel like my podcast is pretty good <laughs> I don't know if uh um I have n- I've yet to make a film as good as any of these so um but it's true that when I saw her film when I saw Jean Dielman and some of these other ones I did f- yeah I did feel like some sort of you know relationship with her um yeah yeah, yeah and, and yeah. that's good i mean I, I think you know let's face it we as as podcasters as commentators critics uh, whatever you want to call us you know we're we're following in a tradition we are offering a little bit of additional illumination on the original works of art themselves so yeah certainly don't mean to you know <laughs> put ourselves on that same pedestal but but it's yeah. it's part of the enjoyment of the work mm-hmm. is is to talk about it and and that's mm-hmm. definitely what we do here on these podcasts and uh, hopefully our listeners are, are getting a little bit of something out of that so so this set basically through there's three discs three dvds the the first disc is what they kind of grouped together as the new york films and this is la chambre but about a 12 minute short uh that takes place entirely in a room that chantal uh, actually lived in herself this was her her residence at the moment, uh, Hotel Monterey, kind of a study of a of a of an occupancy apartment building, and uh, the interiors, and occasionally the people who live there, and then news from home, uh, kind of a a hybrid, a, a collection of street footage of vintage mid seventies New York City. I mean, uh, Southern Manhattan in particular. Uh, along with some some soundtrack recorded by Chantal reading letters from her mother, uh, still back over there in Brussels, saying, what have you been up to? We haven't heard from you often enough, right? Uh, the, mm-hmm. the second and third disc, Je uh, Tout which is uh, Chantal Ackerman's uh, feature debut, uh, another very autobiographical type of work, although uh, we always have to be careful about not reading too much of this is Chantal Ackerman herself. This is a story still. And then the Le Rendezvous d'Anna, uh, or The Meetings of Anna, as it's translated into English, uh, two features from the, the mid and late 70s. So that's that's kind of the breakdown of the set itself. As I've already said, it's, it was released in conjunction with uh, the Jean Dielman film and uh, was kind of a, you know, a big splash at the time. I remember I was definitely into my criterion collecting back in 2009 and these were all brand new films to me but i definitely remember the the buzz that was generated when criterion finally acquired the rights to these films and kind of made it made a big splash with chantal lacherman and now these are you know jean dillman might be a good candidate for a blu-ray upgrade someday but it has not happened uh, of course, Trevor and I, you know, we we talked about the Adnas Varda set uh, a while back, several months mm-hmm. ago, and that's another set where Adnas Varda has still not gotten the Blu-ray upgrade DVD treatment. So it does kind of open the 
the the door to the question you know are are women directors given the same kind of prominence or treatment there was a little bit of a flurry of discussion uh some website out there kind of you know put criterion on point a little bit about not giving enough attention to, to female directors is that a question worth pursuing uh, lady p do you got any thoughts on that as far as uh you know, giving sufficient respect and attention to to woman directors, uh, whether by criterion or just in general. Uh, I mean, certainly. I think the the when we did Jean Dielman on Flixwise, it prompted a whole series of films directed by women. Um, I have again, like I mentioned, I have the the sight and sound list, and then there are, there's an opportunity to add movies to that list that we see fit. And so we did a whole series on female filmmakers and it turns out there are, you know, there are several of them. There probably aren't as many as there should be. Um, But I forget my friend, uh, Mariah Gates did this whole poll about, um, you know, top greatest female filmmakers. She, um, it was, this was her whole project last year. It was called a year with women in which she watched films exclusively directed, uh, exclusively directed by females. Um, and yeah, I think obviously this is a huge issue now. It's kind of coming to the forefront now, but it's been an issue for a, a long time. And I forget what the percentage of films in the Criterion Collection are directed by women, but it is a small number, as you would imagine. So, um, I mean, you know, is it that there's, is it a lack of interest from the general public? Or is it just Criterion kind of overlooking some of these films? I mean, um, I'm afraid I don't know enough about Criterion or the audience to answer that question. But um, I would like to think that there is um, more interest now. So maybe you guys can answer that. Well, my my own thoughts on it are if if they're not available – People won't watch them, and people who look to Criterion or to other distributors as the place to go to learn about film, they're not going to get educated on these films. There's a a growing um, percentage of people who will only watch films or buy these films on Blu-ray, and if they're not on Blu-ray, they aren't going to get them. They just won't. But if these were available all of a sudden on Blu-ray, or Jean Dillman was... You know, you'd see a lot of them picking it up in the cell, posting pictures about it, starting to talk about Chantelle Ackerman and her work or Agnes Varda and her work. And that's that's one thing. I don't want to throw Criterion under the bus because, you know, they are a business. But at the same time, they have a mission statement that says they're dedicated to gathering the greatest films from around the world and um, publishing them. And it makes me think back to my, my high school experience with uh, with literature. I had an American literature class, and we did not read a single woman author, mm-hmm. which, you know, at the time, I'm fairly young. Um, I don't know if I thought this or not, but I can easily see me thinking it, or definitely ma- many others who were in the class, that, well, I guess the only real writers were men, or the only, you know, maybe the women just weren't mm-hmm. writing, which is absolutely not true. Mm-hmm. Um, and until someone breaks the 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 window and, and throws these things out there um in editions that you know sadly these people are going to pick up only if they're in these editions uh you know that's just going to be a blind spot for a whole generation of, of people um and it's it's really too bad because 
it, it just needs to be there. But again, I, I don't have any thoughts on how to necessarily remedy it other than, oh, upgrade the movies to Blu-ray. But, you know, I know it's not as simple as that. And I know it's a very complex issue involving a lot of other factors. But but it, it is something that I think affects um, a whole generation's perspective on what historically great world cinema has been. And the women are absent from that um, in in many in many respects, just because there aren't as many of their films available out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I have to say, you know, even as a woman, I sort of had that same perspective that I guess women just aren't making films, and partially it's because that's what I was told and taught in film school, which is uh, kind of uh, unfortunate. Um, there were some, a few exception, exceptions, obviously, Agnes Varda. Um, I believe we saw Julie Dash. Um, but otherwise, and Maya um, Darren, but otherwise, it, it was, it's all men, you know? So um, even I, who was hungry for that information, was kind of unable to find it um, until now, where I think there is, there has been this kind of consciousness awareness raising effort, uh, especially last year. And, uh, I believe is the ACLU getting involved now. Um, so hopefully at least in terms of Hollywood cinema and, uh, hopefully repertory cinema will, will follow, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the other, the other big kind of shadow hanging over all this is that Chantal Ackerman, you know, she, she did die last year and apparently it was by her own hand. She, she took her life and, and, uh, you know, there's still a fair amount of, at least to me, you know, mystery and uncertainty as to what led to that. But, you know, you even, you even see in these films, you know, this is a woman who's been perhaps subjected to you know, some pretty significant depression and, and, and some difficulties. I mean, again, we talked about the experience of her mother and how some of that trauma really maybe even was passed down from one generation to the next. And, and that reality of, of, um, the struggles and the hardships of life certainly informs her work. Uh, these are not necessarily happy-go-lucky, you know, cheerful, clicking your heels types of movies, although there is, um, beauty and and passion and and meaning and and hope found within them as well so it's a very complex weaving of 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 thoughts and feelings that that we get um as we immerse ourselves in in her work and so you know in a sense there is a a feeling of 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 tragic uh, loss and and tribute and and even just concern for what you know she almost certainly endured as an artist, as a woman, as a as a uh, descendant of a survivor of you know one of the most notorious uh, you know calamities and 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 barbarisms that that uh, have been experienced by humans in in living memory. So so Chantal Ackerman kind of carries all of that with her into these films, and and. You know, despite their minimalism, uh, despite the you know apparent simplicity of of some of their compositions, there's incredible depth and complexity to be found there. So let's let's get into our conversation. Well, re- Go ahead, Trevor. Really, really quickly, I think that that's part of the point that she's going yes, for. Exactly. Is despite the simplicity, despite what looks calm on the surface, there is an ocean of of 
you know, torrents and um, eddies and, and currents and whirlwinds and, you know, all these different things going on underneath it. And and so she just does an amazing job of of presenting that simple surface while letting you sense the, the tumult that's underneath it. Very good. So, well, anyway, this, I'm sure this, we'll talk about yeah, that. Yeah. Well, this has been. A, been <laughs> I, I've really enjoyed this conversation so far. So let's just kind of start, kind of uh, picking apart these films themselves. Let's start with La Chambre, which is a, you know, very brief. It's it's kind of a almost like a film loop. You you probably could put this thing on repeat and just kind of keep playing the cycle out. Uh, Trevor, you've already kind of described it a little bit. You want to just kind of say a little bit more? I mean, what's what's the basic gist of La Chambre? Well, so we're we're just in this room, and it starts out almost looking like a still life. The camera's zoomed in. I can't remember what the first thing is. Is it the table? Um, with, you know, it shows some life has been lived there. There's things on the table. There's, like, you know, there, there are coats on a coat rack. There are dishes in the sink. And the camera is stationary in, in the middle of the room, but it's rotating on a 360-degree axis very slowly around the room. So you've got this, like moving still life almost and as it goes around the room you you get um you you, you come to to one of the corners and there's Chantel Ackerman, Ackerman um lying in her bed uh doing various things as as the the camera continues to to circle the room and so that's the only difference every time that it circles is what is she doing you know i think in the first shot she's just sitting there looking at the camera you know, kind of this, this, um, just, uh, lying there on her side, um, her, yeah, her just kind of elbow. returning our gaze, you know, we're yeah, just watching us almost. Us. Yeah. Right. Yep. And the, the next time you go around, she's kind of under the covers, um, you know, moving around a lot and, uh, you know, you can, you can try to think what, what is she doing there and what does this mean? Um, the next time she, you come around, she's got an apple in her hand and she's kind of looking at it. And the next time she's, she's eating the apple and it just, it's, it's quite strange that, you know, the tension is built by what, what is she going to be doing next? Um, but it's all this room and there she is in bed. Um, and, uh, let's see about, I don't know, nine minutes in the camera suddenly stops and, and shifts direction. And then it kind of begins to go back and forth a little bit, focusing in on, on her portion of the room a little bit more often than it had at the beginning. But that's, that's it. It's a silent film. There's, there's absolutely no, no sound. It, it has no, no track. Uh, there's no ambient noise. There's no music. There's nothing. Just a silent film of, of this room. Right, and, and no, no twist ending. There's nothing that like shocks right. she you doesn't at the jump end. at the camera, and you yeah, know she there's a take all her clothes that, off. Oh, that'll, that'll come right. later. <laughs> but but yeah, yeah, I was just wondering what, what's what's the twist here? What's what's the what's the exclamation? That's point? the camera, David. It's twisting, yeah. and <laughs> <laughs> I guess you're right. But but yeah, you know what does this mean? And yes, it's a young filmmaker experimenting. Um, and you know, like I said before, I, I've, and I've derided films that kind of strike me this way on this podcast before it can look a little self-indulgent, like, Oh geez, do you really think we want to watch a, a movie, even if it's only 11 or 12 minutes of a camera running around your, your, your room, you know, that, that consi- it's a small room. It consists of her kitchen, kind of an entryway and, and her, her bed over there in the corner. Um, but it's, it's rather hypnotizing and, and you get a sense again of 
of a life being lived in that room, in that space that's that's kind of, uh, you know, sequestered away. There's not much else. I, I, I didn't notice it until I read your review, David, but you do get a glimpse of the camera operator in, yeah, in, in it. I, yeah, and I'm not sure if that was deliberate or an accident, but, but certainly, you know, for the most part, the film feels like um, a lonely person um, – well, or at least a person who's alone. I won't say lonely because I, I don't necessarily get that sense. But alone, living her life in this space. This is where she spends her time, you know, at the kitchen table, doing the dishes, lying in bed, doing whatever she needs to do in bed. And it's it's quite remarkable for that. Though I can definitely understand people being like, well, that's pointless drivel, uh, <laughs> self-indulgent, you know, tripe. But. But I liked it. Yeah. Well, Lady I, what, and what, I like what, it more in retrospect, knowing more of where she goes from there too. Yes, yeah. to me, it's, it's yeah. very much an introductory chapter to what follows. But Lady P, what's your right. thoughts on Lashon? Yeah, I completely agree with that statement. Especially, I mean, given the structure of the film, it's sort of like a mini version of Jean Dielman in that we have these three acts, and it's kind of an, uh, an exercise in looking for. What's the difference between the three uh, acts? And while there's no great uh, punchline at the end, like there is in Jean Dielman, I don't want to give anything away, but um, you can kind of see the the seeds of a much larger idea. And I think in that regard, it's fascinating. Um, and also my other thought about La Chambre, uh, La Chambre is that um, I think uh, part of... Uh, Kerman's success can be attributed to just having amazing collaborators. And we can already see in this very early film that um, she had an amazing cinematographer, uh, Babette Mangold, I think is how you pronounce her name. Mm -hmm. And it's just beautifully shot. Uh, it's striking, like the, for, especially considering, you know, not, not necessarily her first film, but among her first films. And it's, gorgeous so um that's yeah, pro- those yeah. are my primarily my two takeaways from that film i, I agree it, re- it really is pretty it, yeah. it 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 could uh, any one of those camera angles could be its own still life painting mm-hmm. it, it really is striking yeah well right there, there's definitely an aesthetic beauty to this and i think that's one of the things that that elevates these early films above the well, I could do that, you know, just yeah. put a cram on a tripod and spin it around a few times. Yeah, you know? but you got to still have your camera in just the right position. You know, if you're a few degrees up or down or over and out, you know, you're not going to get the same symmetry or the same, uh, you know, just just that 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 stillness or that that exceptional framing around whatever it is you're capturing at the moment. And you're right, Babette Mangold is, seems to have a a particular gift for that. I'm sure she and Chantal, you know, worked over the shots and and got things precisely. But that that to me is what's what's truly impressive is that this is it feels like part of this very well thought out, you know, long term plan that Chantal Ackerman had to say, I'm going to create a body of work that's interconnected that, you know, probably moved into some spaces and to some directions that she wasn't fully anticipating as time and life went on. But but she she made sure that her next steps would have a a connection to what had preceded it so that there is this kind of refined aesthetic and, and that you could 
watch it you know chronologically and see the artistic growth and development i mean she she definitely understood what separates you know the dabblers and the dilettantes from the true artists and and that's that's what you see here she's not just kind of indulging in some kind of little trendy phase i'm although i'm sure she's quite subjected to that kind of critique and and perhaps was in some ways back in the early days before she became this known quantity and became before she became so well established on the festival circuit i mean you know part of making the accomplishment that she did is there's her tenacity her, her her sticking with her commitment to say i'm going to keep doing this to prove i'm not just some kind of trifler not some flash in the pan not just some you know critical indie darling but that i'm i'm pretty serious about my work and so yeah this little short film uh, in and of itself may not amount to much but it does you know open the door to some some, some expanded ventures and that's Maybe we're going to Hotel Monterey. So, Lady P, would you like to talk about Hotel Monterey? Oh, just tell boy. us a little bit about that. Yeah, <laughs> I'll just drop Where that one to begin? Uh-huh. <laughs> I get Hotel Monterey, huh? Okay. Um, sure. Well, to, Look at the to draw, tell you, the, right? yeah, <laughs> uh, to tell you the truth, um, I, it's it's uh, kind of unclear to me exactly what. Uh, Carmen's trying to convey, but I guess I can start by describing kind of what I think. What what's happening? It's basically a series of, would you say tableau is the right word? Um, yeah, it's more just yeah. like various interiors of Still lives, really. Yeah. yeah, really, yeah. Um, of this uh, residency in New York, Hotel Monterey, and um, we go from kind of these very dark, dingy interiors. Uh, and I believe we go. We spend an entire day, cycle of a day in this space, in the various corridors and rooms and elevators, and eventually we make our way outside into the daylight. Um, yeah. And there is much like La Chambre, there is no soundtrack. It's completely silent. Um, only La Chambre is about 15 minutes long, and Hotel Monterey, I believe, is somewhere in the 70-minute range. So, yeah, it's um, over an hour, right? Yeah. So, uh, kind of, it can test your patience a little bit. <laughs> so, um, it's La Chambre times 10. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to me, it's it's kind of like, you know, it, it, you know, visual wallpaper. I mean, you know, and, and I, I commented in my review back on Criterion Cast uh, what, six years ago now that this is – it's it's kind of like you know we have the benefit of of having this on on home media on DVD, you know we we can hit fast forward we can hit freeze frames we can pop it in and just sort of throw it on in the background and just check it out whenever we want if we just want to have this, this Ackermanesque atmosphere or something like that. Um, I guess one of the analogies that kind of comes to mind is it's like a kind of a gallery exhibit of of photography except the the photographer is telling you how long you have to look yeah. at each picture that was exactly <laughs> my thought yeah <laughs> and, and and so yeah you do have this kind of this journey this progression from the lobby you know through the upper floors up onto the roof eventually by the next morning and so there is this sense of of, of progression of of exploration there's this kind of heavy eeriness to it even because these corridors 
are mostly abandoned and then every once in a while you get these kind of you know the camera starts to move and it, it has this kind of almost alarming effect after you've been watching all these kind of static shots. Uh, but you're right. It's, it's very experimental. It's, it's very much a, an idea or a concept that's being explored uh, saying, Hey, I have this notion. Let's just, let's just kind of film this building. Let's just work over the course of a, of a day or an afternoon to evening to the wee hours of the morning uh, and to the dawn. And we'll just find interesting shots and we'll just, you know, get them. I, you know, I don't know how much editing went into this. I don't know how much extra footage there was, if this was all shot in camera as such and, and just presented, you know, right off the, right off the negative. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't really understand those things. Even with, even with Lasham, was this just one take and that was it? Or did they do this several times? You know, we, we don't really know the full behind the scenes story of it. I mean, I think about myself in my early twenties and, you know, late teens, I would have loved to have had like a film loop of some of the places I've lived, yeah. you know, it just to have that little scenario, that little tableau kind of preserved for all time. Uh, well, I went ahead and did that, you know, so it's yeah. like, oh, good to, for her, you know, she's yeah. got a, a nice little souvenir of her youth, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah. it's also something to share with us. Uh, and, and, and Hotel Monterey, just again, it, it just gets you looking at things that you might ordinarily just breeze right past. And I think the other thing that stood out to me was just how some of these compositions, after a while, after you stare at them for more than a minute or so, they're not so much rooms and furnishings and surfaces. But they're, they're just patterns of, of like color and 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 shapes that just kind of fill the screen and it's it's kind of abstracted i mean it is it is an image based on reality obviously these are you know photographs or 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 films of actual locations but they kind of take on this i don't know this this they're almost like totems or something it's just kind of the, the the shapes and the colors and the structures that they create on screen become a thing in themselves and that's just kind of a, a an interesting effect now i know that in some of my reading on this on this set uh chantal was was building on you know uh kind of styles established by uh andy warhol and some of his school in, in new york uh, a few other names that you can read about in the show notes that i've put together i have not watched those films you know, nearly as as frequently. I've I've revisited this set several times over the years, and continue just to you know harbor this fondness for her work. And you know, maybe people who watched those back then thought maybe she was being a little bit derivative or imitative of of those of those other filmmakers. But you know, every artist builds on their influences. I'm not going to begrudge her that. Uh, I I just find it kind of a fascinating. Uh, kind of, kind of a little cinematic wallpaper to put on, and, mm-hmm. and just sort of let it do its thing, and not not have to think too hard about it at this point in my uh, familiarity with that film. Well, it, it feels too that she is still progressing in her own in her own way, not just creating a derivative film. Um, because if in La Chambre she's exploring space and and a life lived in space, it feels like she injects a, a very strong element of time into Hotel Monterey. So here we are still exploring these corridors, some of them darkly lit. You know, it's almost it's almost like we're a haunting in a way, you know, and they do feel haunting because these are again spaces where people, 
you know, wander alone or or come and go and, and live their lives, but only for a moment. There, there's just a slight trace of them there still. But also through the through the night, you know, she she starts out in kind of a busy lobby, and then we, we keep moving up the stairs or you know up, up in an elevator to to higher floors until we finally emerge into the dawn. And there's it, it does feel to me like again, you know, her later films are going to focus on. You know, you're just going to have to deal with the passage of time. Sometimes you're going to have to wait with these people. You're going to have to to see how you know life isn't a, a series of events one after another, punctuated like like exclamation points. But there are all of these moments in between and these spaces in between um, that we don't give much significance to, but nevertheless do do have that significance. And so I don't know if I'm reading into it too much, but you know, because it's certainly not. It's it's not always the most pleasurable film to watch, but thinking of it again in terms of what she's what she's doing and, and where she's going, it does again kind of have this this significance. Like wow, she's she's being thoughtful at this very young age of of these things that no one else is capturing quite in this way, and and building on them one after another until she's really going to. To, to hit masterpiece level uh, of of having all of it kind of come together, I, so I did I did like this one uh, more in retrospect than actually sitting down and <laughs> yeah. watching an hour of wandering <laughs> corridors in a hotel. But yeah, <laughs> well, I have know, to say, yeah, oh, um, I, uh, I I when I first watched the film, I tried to sit down and watch it all in one piece, and I don't think I got all the way through. And eventually, I think I made it. Um, but for this go around, I put on the Taxi Driver soundtrack. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> I, w- <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily advocate taking that route because I think it's cheating. Well, that makes it seedier all of a sudden. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, I wondered, I just as an experiment, I wondered if how that would change the viewing experience and not necessarily the taxi driver soundtrack but just having something on in the background if it might um what it would do to the experience and um it's different it's definitely it changes uh it changes how you see the the images when there's something playing in the background um (laughs) but again i don't know if i would recommend that because it is it's cheating (laughs) that's really interesting because the absence of sound really makes it so that you're kind of forced to interpret just the images. But when you have uh, some music playing, uh, especially something like Taxi Driver or, you know, that really kind of fits the time, you know, CD, 70s, New York City, um, Hotel. Uh, yeah, that makes the... That, that, did it did it feel more sinister? Uh, yes, to you? absolutely. I yeah. mean, the, the, as David <laughs> mentioned, it's already... The images are already pretty spooky, but when they, you they play, be, yeah. yeah, when you play that um, uh, Herman soundtrack underneath it, and you it's, start uh, filling in the space yeah. yourself, and wondering yeah. what, what's going on in this hallway that I can't see. <laughs> exactly, and it's amazing. Sometimes it would line up with the shots would kind of line up with shots in Taxi Driver, like the, some of the corridors where um, were in uh, Hotel Monterey kind of lined up with the scene where De Niro is going through the staircase and the, the corridors and at the end of taxi driver. So you kind of, the images suddenly become, take on this kind of, um, kind of grotesque quality. Um, <laughs> the, the sense of foreboding becomes just 
carnage. Um, but again, wouldn't necessarily recommend that route. <laughs> but I, I guess maybe I did that because the the images did kind of recall uh, Taxi Driver. So. Yeah, I like how in the the description they they say you know the occasional op- occupants are framed like Edward Hopper tableau, mm. um, and you know again there's just this sense of this is a space where people aren't are are, are more interior focused than they are exterior focused. You know they they're not paying attention to the space around them. We're forced to, but they aren't, and so they're really kind of inward or you know just kind of taking a sigh almost as a bunch of people sighing. Um, uh, about to to head into the evening and uh, and through the night, so yeah, I can imagine Taxi Driver. I'm trying to think of other scores that might be kind of fun with it, and, and maybe even change it to something optimistic. But yeah. I, I can't quite see fill. what happens. <laughs> yeah, fill in the soundtrack for yourself, I guess. Yeah, um, interesting. Yeah, a friend of mine recommended just put on Miles Davis. Might work. Yeah, I, yeah, I, don't know. I think I love a little free jazz, a little bebop. You know, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll invite listeners if you've got some suggested soundtracks for uh, <laughs> for watching Hotel Monterey. We are open, and we will we will retreat liberally. Okay. <laughs> now, you know, speaking of the passage of time, you know, we're, we're like we're like an hour in, and we've only got yeah. the first two. <laughs> Goodness, all right, we the first two long. short. Yeah, movies. yeah. So, but but you know, that's this is the thing. Chantal Ackerman's films are just a treasure trove of of conversation and of of thought stimulation and and and, and one of the reviews i can't remember which ones that i linked to in my show notes talked about you know, mentioned <coughs> that, that these are films that are in some ways you know more interesting to talk about than the actual process of watching themselves yeah. and i think you know they they all feed into each other i i will say you know, watching them is is no, no substitute for just the discussion but it, they but they do you know, there there is information being passed and and fruit for contemplation and and further dialogue. So, you know, that's certainly what we're doing here today. But let's just talk a little bit about News from Home, which uh, is the third and last of the New York films. It's uh, in some ways probably my favorite of of all the films in this set, just because I, I agree. Well, I find it the most easily accessible. As a, as a guy, as mm-hmm. a man who lived <laughs> through that time, I mean, again, I, I certainly don't mean to disparage any of uh, Chantal's more personal, sort of semi-autobiographical uh, features or, uh, in this in this collection here, but you know, I just found myself so bonded with with news from home on both the visual level because it really is kind of a a streetscape journey of kind of the grittier mid 70s side of 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 manhattan i mean talk about taxi driver soundtrack you Mm -hmm. know you could almost put that right over the top of this uh if you you know it'd be make an incredible uh you know kind of visual audio experience but also the um the letter writing and the dialogue between uh, in this case mother and daughter but i certainly have had my own share of news from home from my mom when I was living out in San Francisco and she was back in my hometown of Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is where I live now. And, you know, some of those same kind of dialogues like, well, how are you doing and what have you been up to? And I haven't heard from you. And <laughs> so yeah. it's like, wow, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of very powerful echoes uh, that, that uh, Chantal was hearing from her mother in the early 70s that I was hearing from my mom in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, so that, that also very much connected with my personal experience. So 
uh, News from Home is is uh, an interesting film. It is available actually in a both a French language and an English language soundtrack. So if you actually access the uh, the DVDs, uh, it's it's kind of easy to miss. It took me a while to even realize that there was an English language option, which I actually kind of prefer. Uh, I you know I don't I, I have a rudimentary understanding of French, but hearing it in English allowed me to concentrate even more on just the visuals, and it is Chantal Ackerman reading the letters from her mother in her own voice. But that's basically what's happening. So the, this film was shot uh, after Jean Dillman, and it was actually uh, made in the mid seventies. I'm not sure seventy five, seventy six, something like that. Uh, Ackerman went back to New York City to film some of the areas that she had previously lived in in the earlier part of the decade, reading letters that her mom had also written to her in those same years. So it was a little bit of a, almost already a reminiscence of of, uh, of a past phase of her life and and kind of that displacement of being in another country, getting letters from home that had a little bit of a manipulative edge to them a bit of a guilt inducing uh, affect of saying well here's what's happening in our family a father's health problems and her siblings uh, marital issues and the potential divorce and just all the all the stuff that we, we all missed yeah. you at the birthday party exactly yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> just kind of like while while chantal is out there doing her artistic and and even self um self-realization thing you know she's learning she's experiencing life she's traveling she's she's getting out there she's becoming a known artist and respected as such and yet there's the maternal tug just kind of pulling her right back in as much Mm -hmm. as she can and if she doesn't come all the way back home she's certainly going to be feeling some guilt pangs uh you know in in her absence so yeah, I mean, uh, to me, it's just a remarkable film. Just again, because the the moments that it captures, both the uh, the streetscapes, the the subway scenes, the the people, the vehicles of the nineteen seventies. I mean, it's just like a fantastic time capsule, but also more than just a nostalgic indulgence. This is a this is a pretty powerful document. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I- yeah. I loved this one. It was definitely my favorite. And and for some of the reasons that you mentioned, David, I, I've left the country a few times for long periods and, you know, you, you, you miss home at first. And the thing that I thought was interesting is we only get Chantel herself, her, her, you know, what she's maybe going through because of what her mom's saying, like, Oh, we didn't get your, you haven't heard from you for a little while. And I, I loved how, you almost feel like she's the one wandering these streets alone, disconnected, alienated, you know, in multiple ways, both from her family, but also somewhat from the surroundings. She's, you know, no one's interacting with the camera. It's just there. And a lot of these are, you know, kind of lonely streets and, um, you know, out out of the way areas. And I I love, and this is why the English language track, I think is, is also quite powerful. I love that, there's moments in the later on in the film where the letter you cannot hear the letter because of the ambient noise of the street and you know the subway gets too loud for for her to for for the the voiceover to 
to reach us. We just can't hear what that's being said. And kind of what that says about this disconnection, you know, as, as time passes, how much more um, distance does there, you know, is built between you and those at home, you know, that you, you just kind of, it just becomes noise in and of itself in the background. You know, you, you've got your life here as lonely and alienated as it is, it is where you're at. And that stuff, you know, that you may have paid close attention to responding to letters quickly and, you know, telling them everything, eventually it just kind of slips away. It's not part of this world anymore. And um, yeah, I found this one very powerful, um, both for the images and for, you know, the, the letters, but but in general, just for what it's kind of saying about this um, this disconnect between family and space and and again, as time is passing, that, that we, as we watch just time passing on the street and someone kind of experiencing that, I thought it, it, it's – I've never seen a film that can that did all of that um, mm-hmm. at once. I don't think I've ever had any piece of art quite um, bring back that sense of, uh, of, you know, exile almost, even though it's not a literal exile in this case, but just of being away from it all, but also a part of something huge – but that is nevertheless still rather alienating and in, and intimidating and imposing. I just I I thought this was just incredibly strong um, for me. This is where the whole set kind of came together <laughs> in mm-hmm. a in a strange way. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess I would just echo what both of you have said. I agree. This is the best film in the set, and I think that there's a case to be made that this is one of the the masterpieces of her career um the, i think they're probably you there's a case one could argue that there is the, a singular masterpiece but i would also make a case for this one as well um this one uh news from home kind of crystallizes so many of the ideas that she'd been working on before uh in her previous works um again the, trains are a motif we see over and over again in her work in this film and in other later films um, and just this sort of sense of transience and not feeling rooted anywhere in particular and kind of searching for home and not, and feeling like it's just elsewhere. Um, And yeah, as you all said, this really captures that sense of alienation that comes from being in a new space and (laughs) feeling these sort of dueling desires to kind of strike out on your own and yet wanting the comfort of home, but also at the same time understanding that while home may sound appealing at times, it comes with there. There's a there's a reason to try and make it in this kind of um, even though New York is kind of depicted as uh, maybe a wasteland is too strong of a word, but it's not especially inviting. But and yet we see that um, well, we don't see any images of like of great triumph. We don't see any of the acclaim. There's no evidence that this person who's receiving these letters is, has is in any kind of um, solid financial position. Um, And yet we completely understand why she'd want to stay. And a part of that is just to be, you to be to be to endure maternal guilt from you know several thousand miles away is <laughs> difficult yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. uh one would imagine that if she were to return home that 
guilt might not subside entirely. So, um, yeah. yeah. It would become even more confining and constricting and, and painful to endure because it would, in a sense, become inescapable. I mean, as, as, you know, agonizing as it might be to receive that letter and to understand very intuitively the mother's pain behind not seeing her daughter. And, and again, I mean, you know, it's the remotest, you know, uh, stretch of the imagination for me to think about being Chantal Ackerman's mother mm-hmm. but she seems like such an incredible personality and and presence that it's like yes of course if you had the privilege of being her mother you'd want to be around her as much mm-hmm. as you can because you know she's brilliant she's creative uh there's just a connection there and yet because of her talent and her potentials and her curiosity She's just not going to be part of your life on a very day-to-day basis for long periods of time. And that's a, you know, as, as a, as an adult who's got children, uh, you know, in their, you know, mid to late twenties or a daughter in their thirties, I, you know, I'm pretty fortunate that my kids all live close by, but I know that that may change someday. And, mm-hmm. and there's a certain sense of loss of just not having them around and not being able just to drop in and. You know, and I've got my own parents, you know, and, and, and my relationships with them. So, and we all have our own stories. So I won't go too too personal with all that. But, you know, there is that sense of, oh, my gosh, I just wish you were nearby. Mm-hmm. And just all the complexities of emotions that, that go on both sides of, of that communication. Right, yeah. It is a, it's amazing how fully realized the mother is and we're left to kind of infer the character of the the narrator, I guess, or the person who is in New York. Um, but they both feel so recognizable. We understand yeah, yeah. like pieces of them with we we see pieces of both characters within ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think any mm-hmm. any adult who's come of age can certainly relate. Even if you're not a parent yourself you can sort of recognize what it's like on the other side. Yeah, you know, yeah. For sure. Well, let's let's keep things moving and and uh I mean, yeah, I just I do want to just say there's just some incredible shots of the city and the, and that last sequence where she's pulling away out into the ocean uh with the, with the you know, southern Manhattan just kind of framed there. It's just it's just a fantastic, you know, image it, it it's burned itself into my memory uh, I, I first wrote about these films on one of the 911 uh, commemorative events i think it was in 2010 actually it wasn't it was the ninth anniversary of of those infamous uh you know, attacks and, and and all all the thoughts and feelings that surround that day uh, but there there's there's the world trade center uh, mm-hmm. seemingly holding up the sky i mean the the clouds just kind of intersect right with the top of those twin towers and it's uh you know it's it's quite moving just to sort of see it all there obviously you know nobody had any clue at the time the destiny of those particular buildings but it's still just it's it's an incredible image and uh an an amazing finale to a, a a powerful powerful film yeah well, let's go ahead and move on to uh, Jetu Ilel. This is uh, Chantal Ackerman's debut feature. Uh, this is a, a film uh, in black and white that I think really introduces us to her as a very distinct personality and and uh, a visual presence. I mean, we saw her in La Chambre. We heard her voice in News from Home. But this film, of course, came 
was made before News From Home, so we got to get our order right here. But this is where Chantal Ackerman basically became a character. Uh, well, you know, she, she was in the first film, too, but we just have a very extended portrait of herself, a self-portrait. And, uh, boy, you know, talk about... The bearing your soul mm-hmm. <laughs> and a little bit and a little bit more yeah. <laughs> yeah. i did not know that the chantel ackerman in the 70s meant that we would see chantel ackerman in the 70s yeah. so much yeah, <laughs> yeah. lots of chantel ackerman <laughs> so so lady p why don't you give us what, what is your take on this particular thing? <laughs> yeah okay so uh i guess just i'll describe what happens uh the beginning is chantel ackerman ackerman um, in a room by herself, kind of reveling in her own sadness. Uh, maybe that's not a charitable way of putting it, but um, uh, I, I think that I think it's fair. I mean, she's yeah. definitely putting it out there for display. Oh, woe is me! You know, yeah. I mean, that really is there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, it, the film shows. You know, she's sitting in. She's locked herself up in her room with nothing but a bag of sugar and some paper um, and maybe a few, yeah, scattered pieces of furniture, which eventually disappear and um, kind of holds herself up in that space for a while. And that's the first act. And then in the second act, we get this story of how she, she exits the, the room and hitchhikes with a truck driver. And she has kind of a sexual encounter with this, truck driver um who is who describes in detail his um relationship with his family and his wife and uh we see a Karaman's character is kind of riveted by him um despite some of the more off-putting things that he says um and they share a few meals together and then in the third act, she goes and visits what who is someone who is presumably her ex lover, um, but it's never explicitly stated. And the the ex lover, female, um, sits her down and makes her a sandwich and makes her another sandwich, and then the film concludes with kind of a, a very long or an extended sex scene. Um, it's or it's a scene, a scene of a sexual nature, and um, then I should say, then we get a sex scene, and then the film concludes with uh, Chantal leaving the bedroom and heading off on her own. And so, uh, what to make of this film? Um, like most of these films, it's sort of up for interpretation. Uh, take from it what you will. But my and – and with each viewing, I have new different takeaways. But the, on this viewing, my thought was it feels to me kind of like a creation myth. Um, just the way that the narration starts, on the first day, I did this. On the second day, I did this. As if somehow um, moving a mattress around and eating sugar is uh, as laborious as creating the sun and stars. Um, but <laughs> – <laughs> it's sort of yeah to me it was written in this sort of uh i don't know it seemed almost yeah biblical <laughs> kind of mythic. Yeah, exactly. yeah 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 kind of yeah. yeah except um instead of a 
creation myth, it was kind of this a creation slash destruction myth. So through destruction comes uh, rebirth. And it's kind of a story of rebirth. So something terrible has happened. Something in her world has completely, something has turned her world completely upside down. And she's unable to deal with it, so she destroys all of her earthly possessions and kind of strips down, literally strips down to the bare essentials and slowly works her way back into uh, becoming a fully realized person. So her experience with the truck drivers, she's sort of, she seems almost feeble in those scenes. It could just be because she's been eating nothing but sugar for several days, Um, but her sort of childlike exploration of the of the world and um kind of her helplessness are on display and then again with her ex-lover ex-girlfriend um we do see kind of some of that helplessness but in the in that case she's sort of able to ask for what she wants and um you know, she asks for food, she asks for drink, and eventually just asks for uh, whatever the physical uh, sexual experience. Although not through not through words in that case, but um, yeah, I thought that was sort of my takeaway from this one. But how about you guys? That's a very intriguing take. I mean, this this creation myth, or or just putting it in these kind of mythic terms of 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 destruction, of rebuilding of expression and nourishment and sexual I mean you're right all of her needs are are very primal she's she's trying to get her thoughts out by writing this letter but just not getting out right she's 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 feeding herself but the only thing that's available which is this bag of sugar and she's just I mean it's not so she's just eating sugar she's taking spoonful after spoonful I mean literally I was like shivering and shaking yeah, I to think, what would it be I hope like she's not really eating sugar well yeah. I think she really was I mean yeah. I think she was plunging herself into her art just in the same way that when she when she takes off her clothes, she's really taking them off. You know, I mean, this mm-hmm. is this is the real her, and she's she's fully investing herself in her art to the point of, you know, discomfort, potential embarrassment. I mean, it's a it's a commitment that she can't undo. Once this film is seen, once it's out there, there she is, literally and, and figuratively, uh, naked to the world, and and she's decided to put herself sort of on the line to that extent. Um, yeah, even, you know, you talked about, you know, she's been living off of nothing but sugar. Well, when she finally gets that ride from the, the trucker as a hitchhiker, uh, then he's given her beer, you know, and I, I was just mm-hmm. noting that scene, you know, where she's, you know, he's sitting there taking these big manly swigs, these deep drafts of beer. And she's like sipping, she takes like these little short, like five or six little sips in a row. I don't know if anybody else noticed that, but it, you know, I'll just say it's kind of a girlish way of, mm-hmm. of consuming alcohol or, or any other kind of beverage or, or food product, just little, little tiny mouthfuls, um, in rapid succession. And while she's doing that, he's just kind of checking her out for sort of a little bit of a side eye, like, okay, just kind of waiting until she's drunk enough for him to take advantage of her. You know, that's, that's basically what I picked up on. He's just Mm -hmm. basically your, your standard, you know, chauvinistic male who's just kind of looking to reach that tipping point so he can sort of, you know, you know, take advantage and, and, and do his thing. And, and that's exactly what happens. Now, whether that's, it's never really, 
put out there that she's intoxicated or compromised in some way. And she's a, a willing participant. And while she's basically, you know, fondling him, uh, you know, he's giving his little, you know, <laughs> calloused philosophy of love and marriage. And, yeah, this is what's really important, which is mm-hmm. basically you stroking me off. And, mm-hmm. and it's like, wow, just, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if she had met men who spoke that brazenly or if she's doing a little bit of projection here but i think she does capture something (laughs) about the male psyche i I don't think she's (laughs) off base by any means but it's it's pretty remarkable just how raw and candid she she uh captures it here and uh yeah it is it's 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 like that whole from the the time he picks her up you're just kind of waiting so for them you know, in one way or another to get it on. Like, and what's that going to look like? You know, they're at the bar, they're at the restaurant. There's no talking or there's nothing of substance going on. It's like, that doesn't even really matter. It's until you get your hands in my groin. That's what matters. Right. And it's like, yeah. wow, yeah, that that's, that's pretty blunt, but, uh, you know, she knows yeah. something. Yeah. And as soon as it happens, then he starts, then he's real chatty, which is fascinating. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I like how she's watching him fairly closely throughout trying to well, – there's a lot about gazes in this one. She, she's watching him, um, you know, almost like is this what, – what, what do I really have here? And um, also the gazes between her and her ex-lover at the end as they're, you know, almost uh, – Kind of building up to that encounter. Yeah, and, and rejecting it and, you know, there's just a mess of emotions going on there. Um yeah, who's in control? Trying who's, to reconcile or not? Yeah, right. a lot of power dynamics. Yeah, who's in this setting film. the agenda here? Yeah, and so for me, I, I like um, Lady P's uh, thought about this being kind of mythic and and biblical. Though, though, as you said that, I kind of thought of um, like Sisyphus. You know, it, it, I wonder if she's about to go back to her bedroom um, at the end of this film oh. and just repeat the cycle. I don't necessarily feel like she's built up into. You know, she she's she's climbed up the mountain but i think she's about to roll back down it or or that's one way of looking at it you know i I think she's just not finding whatever it is that she feels she needs and and you know it's 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 a it's a strange interesting film that again i didn't really get much from it as i was watching it i was just like what on earth is going on Mm -hmm. here and why is what why is this one extended scene after another um but in thinking about it, I, I just thought, yeah, this is pretty powerful look at someone who's kind of on rollers and and going back and forth, trying to figure out what what in my life is really going to fulfill me and not quite finding it. Mm. But yeah. a lot of sugar, I guess. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> sugar and beer. <laughs> That's interesting. I don't know why I had such an optimistic takeaway. But <laughs> that's not in my nature. But uh, yeah, I somehow was I was rooting for her at the end. I felt like her ability to just get up and leave it behind was sort of yeah, a. Well, and I don't think that it's off either. I think um, I I think that both there's legitimacy to both approaches because she does she is somewhat in control even with the man. Like David said, she is willing. She's like experimenting with this. Mm-hmm. Um, but she can leave that too when she's ready to leave it. And so, and, and she goes back to, and gets what she wants from her ex-lover. And so there is some, I, I, I think that you're, you're right, that there is some degree of, um, 
building herself and, and strengthening herself. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I think you, again, just looking where is she at at this point in her life? She's probably in her what early twenties, and and really just coming into her own sexually, artistically, uh, maybe even sort of financially independently. Uh, these, these are, and, and, and who is she going to stay with and who is she going to leave behind? And is she even going to commit to any kind of a specific long-term relationship? And I, I certainly am not that familiar with the, the, the biographical details, but I think my impression is that she, she didn't have any long-term kind of monogamous type of relationships. Are, are you aware of any of that lady P any uh, biographical uh, details well, on her personal life? I believe she was married, but I don't think it's for... She wasn't married for a long period. And, of course, I'm getting that to, off to of... To a man? The, you're talking about... No, yeah. to a woman. Oh, to a woman. Okay. Yeah, and, so... And, okay. But, maybe, uh... Maybe we can clarify something. Yeah, I, I believe... Um, but... I don't know. I don't remember where I read that, so... Yeah. <laughs> but but at this but this at this stage of her life, she was certainly not settled down or or in any kind of a long-term commitment and and that was partly because of her artistic ambitions her career and and just kind of her sort of personal emotional development and i think yeah that's what you see here is that she's you know uh, she's just exploring options uh, the title you know i you him her Mm -hmm. Uh, how do i connect with other people uh, on a subjective level and again uh, every viewer is going to have a different, perhaps, a point of access. Some may see themselves reflected here. Others may say, well, that's like how it is for other people, but maybe not for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, this, this again, was just, uh, again, her first extended feature-length uh, film was sort of a narrative plot, if you will. Uh, and that set the stage for Jean Dillman. And then uh, the next film we're going to talk about, uh, Les Rendezvous d'Anna, uh, The Meetings of Anna, is kind of the one that kind of capped off her work in the 1970s. So, I don't know, Trevor, you want to go ahead and uh, take a little intro on that one? Sure. So this this is her fourth feature film, um, coming, as David just mentioned, after Jean Dillman. And I, I, I had to use uh, Michael Kresge's notes quite a bit to, to understand the progression from, you know, Je tu il elle into Les Rendezvous d'Anna. Um, Donna, it's, uh, it's interesting because... Because of Jean Dillman, she became rather famous and then starts working on this film. Um, and he, he makes a, a case that it's by a male-owned company um, working with a crew composed mostly of men. And so a lot of people thought that it was already corrupted. You get this, this film of, of, um, the, of a woman, but, you know, kind of being funded and and controlled in many ways by men and so it was kind of a failure but i find that somewhat surprising because i think again it really captures this uh this wanderlust that that ackerman is is exploring here uh we have um it, it could be fairly autobiographical um but i you know as david said before i don't know how much and so i'll be careful there <clears throat> but you have a, a filmmaker, a, a female filmmaker, who's kind of going from place to place. Uh, she's she is successful. She you know people recognize her on the street and know who she is. But for the most part, here we see her alone, and and meeting with people, but not for any kind of lasting. Um, uh, 
and, well, I, I guess I'll just say it's, it's not for anything lasting. You know, she she meets uh, with a, a fellow for a one night stand. Um, she she does meet with uh, I think an ex fiance. She meets with uh, her own mom, and kind of just going through all of this and thinking, you know, again, what is what am I searching for? I don't even know what it is I'm searching for, but I just know I haven't found it yet. And, you know, uh, you point out in your review that the the first uh, words in the film are, are basically she gets a phone call. Um, she's trying to, to get something accomplished and they say, well, you'll need to wait for two hours. You know, the wait, the wait is two hours. And that's kind of the runtime of this film. And that's kind of what we're doing and she's doing as we go through it. You know, what what's going to come next? We see her a lot of times in, in hotel rooms alone, um, looking at the things around her. Because that's who she is. She is artistic. She is sensitive. She she is observant. Um, but where it doesn't quite come together is is with the uh, the relationships. And we also get the sense that even this art that she's been pursuing isn't lasting. You know, it's not something that gives her. You know, she doesn't accomplish it and say, "I'm done. I've arrived here. I am fully fully realized. I am I am now." this person i i am i am powerful you know she gets something done and then it's on to promoting and to doing all this this legwork alone basically mm-hmm. and i i thought that I, again it 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 isn't necessarily the most pleasurable film to watch and sit through because it is long periods of waiting and wondering but they're very powerful um scenes they it is still compelling it's still uh, and then in particular on reflection, you just go, wow, the, the weight of all that that I just watched is, is still on me. I still – I can feel all of that. Um, so anyway, that's kind of my, my, my rundown. It, it, it was probably my second favorite film of the of the set after News From Home. I just – I really liked, again, this exploration of, of the passage of time uh, as someone who's got a lot of stuff going on in her mind and a lot of anxiety and a lot of um, desire, um, but just not not getting it fulfilled, you know how does how does that person spend the evening hours alone, yeah. or I guess in the case may be with with these various people that she does encounter and then and then move away from. Yeah, I mean, what did you guys think of uh, Aurora? Is that her? Aurora Clement's performance. I actually liked it. I, I definitely read some some criticisms or some people who felt like she's just kind of floundering or she's. Yeah, I I think in my review I drew some comparisons to how Robert Brasson used his actors as models, mm-hmm. and there is mm-hmm. definitely kind of stand here, recite your lines. There's a sort of a flatness to the affect, but I think it's very effective in what Chantal is trying to get across to her audience. She is kind of. A little bit numbed. the whole thing's flat, right? Yeah. yeah, and she's a little. I mean, she she's having this experience of traveling across Europe and showing her film and answering questions and being feted and celebrated as this you know creative genius. And I'm sure at a certain level, her ego is being massaged, and she is enjoying that. But she's communicating the other side of it. It's like 
So is that what it's all about? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I've done this thing and I'm kind of playing out the role of the, you know, the brilliant young auteur, uh, you know, a, a woman, kind of a unique thing in the film scene of that era. And, uh, you know, she's, she's realizing her ambitions, but she, like, like you said, Trevor, she's kind of recognizing the, the, there's still something missing. There's something that's not quite all the way there. And, and I think, this is how she's been directed, and I think, you know, she she is successfully portraying the role the way it's been envisioned by Chantal Ackerman. Yeah, I think so, too. And I think that the whole everything, you know, in fact, most of these films are filmed rather flatly. You know, there, there's very little camera movement that goes anything above just a flat uh, parallel framing. Um, they're usually very symmetrical, which can also feel kind of flat. And so I think all of that comes together really nicely in this film. It it, it just emphasizes that. I, I don't think that, you know, they, they are beautiful compositions, um, but also there's there's some great uh, thematic work going on just in how she puts the camera in. And, and that, that didn't strike me until this particular film, um, seeing just, you know, here we are in this space. There we there there we have it. I'm not going to move the camera up and down and zoom in and out and um, put it down on the floor or up on the ceiling for some canted angles or anything like that. Um, it's just straight on. No, it's all straight on. Yeah. So, Lady Pete, what what are your thoughts about Aurora Clement and and uh, the character in general? Yeah, I mean, she, as you say, she's flat and. Um... I would say kind of nondescript, and mm-hmm. uh, as we, as you guys said, it's intentional. Um, she's kind of a vessel for other people's anxieties. People seem to like mistake her flatness for interest. It's uh, fascinating. Um, yeah. yeah, she's which, not actively putting them off. She's not acting yeah. haughty or dismissive. So her openness <laughs> it's like okay well let me fill that void with all my right exactly inner baggage right right yeah kind of her silence invites just all these very personal confessions from these different this all these different people um so that was fascinating until the end which i was sort of i was getting kind of frustrated with her character and mm-hmm. and and perhaps her performance. And then at the end, it all kind of came together for me when she's riding in the cab, trying to go to the pharmacy to pick up some medicine. Yeah, and for... she's tearing up very subtly. Yeah. But you can yeah. tell she's like, there's a, here's another abandonment that she's on the verge of, you know, executing. She's going to leave this guy behind. And she's she's wrestling with all that. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, Lady right. P, do you? Yes. Uh, this goes back to our playtime conversation. Did you, did you recognize the green light from the pharmacy sign? And how, and, oh, was that and, it? Oh, my well, God. Yeah, in, in playtime, you know, where, where uh, yeah. Monsieur Hulot goes to get his food and everything's tinted green. It's, it was from yes. a pharmacy sign <laughs> in the other building. It's like, oh, my gosh, that's where the green pharmacy, uh, hey. that, that death-like pallor <laughs> Yeah, It all comes back around. But, yeah, Fascinating. it's all connected, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it all really did make me want to go to Paris. Mm-hmm. I mean, that more than uh, any other location, there more was something than, more than West Germany. Huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, Germany didn't look like that all that cheerful, actually. But, yeah, yeah, it really didn't. Even though I, you know, I love Germany, um, but uh, 
and I would also love to go go to Berlin and see both East and West Berlin. But um, something about Paris, there it was crowded. It was lively, um, at least while they were while uh, her boyfriend. I wasn't sure um, her acquaintance was picking her up from the airport um, or from the train station and. There's something just like that seemed full of activity, even though all we get are views from behind the dashboard. Um, but just the kind of traveling shots through uh, Paris seemed, you know, there were people on the streets, uh, even though this appeared to be kind of at a, a late hour. Um, and I don't know, again, we get the, the sort of callback to stuff like to films like Hotel Monterey, where you have frames that feel almost haunted, um, and she's kind of she's the the wandering eye that gets corporeal form in this, whereas in something like Hotel Monterey, it's just the camera, um, and it's amazing, even though she doesn't have a lot she's not especially expressive it's still just to have that kind of audience proxy makes a big difference in how we invest in the images um yeah. so that was kind of my my takeaway also it had helmut grime grime which um i thought i recognized him and then which, i was like no was he, I, I he mean, was the are... yeah he's the german lover okay yeah, the 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 teacher mm-hmm. who was kind of begging her to stay, and right. uh, yeah, he's in uh, Cabaret. <laughs> so oh, nice. Yeah, okay. That's a good <laughs> plays Max. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so that was delightful for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's kind of uh, this is one of her later films, so we have sort of more recognizable people in it. Yeah, well, um, actors, and this this is where she's starting to get into more conventional, you know what you might call commercial narrative cinema. I didn't see this um, when it first was released, but I remember hearing about uh, Les Rendezvous Donna, uh, you know, in 78, 79, when it was hit in the States. I mean, Ackerman had already become a a name of sorts, and I, I just never got around to watching it, but it definitely registered with me. And so, you know, when I approached this film, that, that was actually, I'd heard more about that probably than Jean Dillman, except for the, all the you know, the kind of the hype surrounding the Criterion release when it first came to my attention back in 2009. Uh, prior to that, I really didn't know anything about that particular film. And I, I, I didn't even know about Chantal Ackerman herself, just more hearing about this movie, the, you know, the laser on the view to Anna, uh, you know, as, as a young man. So I actually, I did enjoy this. I, I, I And I, I think, again, going back to the, the flatness of uh, Aurora Clement's performance, uh, you know, people who criticize her might be the same type who say to a woman, you need to smile more. <laughs> and, it's, <laughs> and it's like, you know, no, let her be who she is and let, let uh, Chantal tell the story. I mean, I, I think she was probably suffering from a bit of fatigue from the celebrity circuit that she'd all of a sudden found herself in. I mean, if nothing else, Chantal Ackerman strikes me as a consummate artist, you know, and I say that in, with, with respect, certainly not to, you know, label or pigeonhole her, because I know a human life is more than any single vocation, you know, and, and an artist is just in a sense, it's just a job, even though it may also consume a, a big portion of one's 
waking hours and attention and and it and it does cast a person in a particular role of of what people expect from them and how they behave and and uh, like any other role that we find ourselves in there's always going to be limitations there's always going to want to be that desire to push back and say i don't want to just be defined as you know fill in the blank whatever you think i am Mm-hmm. And, and 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 you know maybe we're we're getting into into the wrap up phase of this of this particular episode there, but but that's that's what intrigues me about about this particular set and 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 the messages I get from it is this is this is a, a woman who's really living a very vital life and really working very determinedly to try to capture as many of these impressions of of what's going on around her and what's happening within her and and then expressing you know communicating that for for viewers to say here's what it's like for me how is it for you and 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 in that process engaging us in a dialogue and i think that's what makes these films certainly more than some kind of pretentious self-important look at me i'm the artiste statement mm-hmm. she she's really talking about the reality of of, of life as as experienced with its with its uh, with its frustrations, with its limitations, with its hurts and pains, but also with with that sense of creativity and exploration, and and of of, of searching for new possibilities. I mean, that, that's what I get. So, you know, th- there these are a little bit on the heavier side, um, but that, that but that's a good thing. And and uh, and I'm again really intrigued to see where else she went because i from my understanding from my reading she she did get into some lighter territory and and Mm -hmm. uh you know she tried her hand at a lot of different types of movie making uh, even though again it was all kind of integrated into this kind of larger life's work that she put together so uh, i don't know any any particular last thoughts on les rendezvous de anna or do we want to just kind of give some general perspectives on our our takes on uh, carmen herself yeah, I mean, I'm happy I'm to. Um, yeah, I'm happy to kind of talk more generally and uh, just in conclusion. Um, yeah. I, I'm generally not a fan of kind of um, autobiographical accounts of what it's like to become famous and how it be, can be a burden. But um, in this film, everything it it feels so sincere, and there's no real attempt to make that experience universal but the the feeling of loneliness and isolation and the inability to connect um is i think and she she captures that beautifully and throughout all of these films there is it is deeply personal um but through that we get something universal and i think you know there is this very specific female um kind of bisexual uh, you know, Belgian, uh, kind of Jewish, not kind of Jewish, um, filter that, that is presenting all of these images. And yet through that specificity, we get something universal. And, and as you say, you know, you're not, you, you guys are not, uh, Belgian Jewish females, but there's all, there's something for you to take away as well. Um, and I think that's kind of what's remarkable about her. And, um, I think just describing the films, one might get the impression that, you know, she's this kind of stereotypical feminist kind of just 
<laughs> wallowing in the female. Um, I don't know. Have you guys seen Ghost World? Yes, I, I love yeah. that movie. Yeah. It's been a <laughs> <Yeah>. few years. <laughs> There's just been a little yeah. bit of a dialogue about whether or not that would ever get a Criterion release, and oh. I think it would. And and Terry Zweigoff, the director, I, I actually had a chance to meet him at a, ah. a, a signing back when uh, Crumb and Louie Bluey were released by Criterion. He said that Ghost World was on its way. Ah, and that was back so perhaps. In That's a little yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Um, so. But Ghost World, yeah, tell us more about yeah. that. I didn't mean to interrupt Well, so... Do you remember there's a scene she's going to like art classes and there's uh other, her fellow classmates producing these kind of um moody experimental short films about dolls and tampons um <laughs> and <laughs> I think the film kind of sneers at that and uh in some ways like that's that's kind of what Ackerman does at least I think in one could argue the beginning of uh, Jetuel kind of feels that way. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's um, getting into some yeah. of that, that squirmy territory for yeah. us guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that's okay because, I mean, Paul, you know, Lady Pete, you, you and I had a little conversation at the end of our close-up episode about the concerns of women being somewhat discredited or marginalized in quote-unquote mainstream cinema when really the concerns of women are really the concerns of <laughs> everybody yeah. in the way about Humans, relationships yeah. and family and and who you care about and who you grieve over i mean those those don't have the same you know epic scale of war and politics and you know alien <laughs> invasions and right. stuff like that but that's closer to reality than a lot of that more kind of adventurous out there stuff exactly yeah yeah sort of making these very personal uh, things very universal um and the other thing that i want to mention really quickly is that uh there are a number of other films and that she made that i kind of want to just give quick shout outs yes, to obviously do. jean dillman is a must see and um she made this movie called uh from the east which she where she went to uh the eastern block just after the wall fell and kind of did a similar sort of travelogue in her uh, very Chantal Ackerman way, um, where just going to various uh, train stations and kind of shooting endless train footage. Um, as I mentioned, trains are just a constant motif in her work. <laughs> um, and that one's fascinating just to see how she continued with, the themes of the these earlier films, but sort of built on them. And um, there's a short documentary she did called, um, I think it's, And Then Pina Asked, which is about the dancer, what's her name? Pina. Um, Pina Bosch, uh, right? Yes, Pina Bosch, thank you. Um, uh, who has gained some notoriety just because I, Vim Vendors did another documentary on her a couple of years ago. Um, but if you want Ackerman's take, that is also available. So those are two really fascinating um, pieces of work. And there's actually a couple of movies of hers that I haven't seen, including a kind of 
romance, like a, so I guess it's kind of uh, supposed to be a Woody Allen sort of New York intellectual comedy called uh, A Couch in New York, which stars Juliet Binoche and William Hurt. So I plan on watching that soon. I am very, very curious about yeah, that. Yeah, I, I was very fascinated to see that. And I think the DVD may be out of print, but mm. um, it's, it's, you know, you may have to pay a little bit of like $25, $30 or something for it if you're looking for it on disc. There's a fair amount of her stuff that I just recently discovered is available on youtube some of her shorts some of her like documentary-ish type features and things of that sort uh you know she's she's got let's just say limited availability on dvd mm-hmm. or blu-ray in the usa at least uh maybe over in europe you're going to have a little bit more access to her work because she's a she's you know she's a significant name uh, but you know this is going to this is not necessarily going to be coming to the video store near you. You may have to search some of this stuff out. But I, I definitely plan to you know, fit some more of her later films in because having really the benefit of, of concentrating on this set over the past week or so to prepare for this episode, uh, I, I would consider myself a significant Chantal Ackerman fan and, and somebody that I really want to get to know more and certainly – understanding more about the circumstances that may have led to her demise last last fall uh you know grieving that more than Mm -hmm. just in the general sense but really feeling like you know how how sad that she probably still had more good work ahead of her um you know we're certainly still kind of reeling and absorbing the loss of prince this week and and when you when you see these really towering artistic talents you recognize that (laughs) Truly, something of humanity has just been diminished when these voices have been silenced. Uh, whatever the circumstances might be, it's just a, it's just a significant uh, loss for all of us, especially those who've taken the time and learned to appreciate their work. So, yeah, yeah, Trevor, you have any any thoughts you want to just kind of uh, toss in as we kind of wrap things up here? No, I, you guys have definitely beyond just the films themselves but i'm very encouraged to keep going with with her work i'm excited to see jean dillman i'll i'll report back on on that briefly um when i get it done because this is this is all this is incredibly important work this isn't just like oh this is good this is important this is a these are explorations that many people don't do and many people don't pay attention to but that really open up um understanding between between us and and so i i'm very excited um that we still have a lot of her work uh that i still have a lot of her work in front of in front of me so that but uh but yeah i i was a little wary about this set because i didn't know what to expect i knew that they were long shots and a lot of people kind of sitting around and you know i thought of um fast benders Katzelmacher, you know <laughs> something like that <laughs> yeah. where and i really didn't like that one that much i liked a lot of the other films of his that we did but you know that seemed just kind of pointless waiting just to show the audience that you know, i can make you sit through this if i want to um but that's not what we have here this is this poignant and important uh, um, a lot of stuff going on in those silent um seemingly empty spaces so mm-hmm. yeah i'm excited for you to see jean dealman all right. Yeah. Partially. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> Let us know. <laughs> so, so yeah. Um, so, so, Lady Pete, now you have already covered Jean Dillman for Flixwise, yes. then, because that's yes. actually still ahead on the the Flixwise or the Sight and Sound countdown. So, um, what was the circumstances of you covering that film? Oh sort no, of it's ahead uh, of schedule or just no, you just had was, to do it. 
No, I mean it, it was uh, on schedule. It's in oh, the top are you, fifty. Are you going yeah. from the top to the bottom, or are you going? I'm from... going from the top to the bottom. Oh, okay. Well, that, yeah, yeah. That's big, big goof on my part. I thought you were working your way up. So okay, so you're no, no. you're in descending order. Okay. Well, I'm yes, gonna have to go back I... and, and revisit that episode. Yeah, I, I, some have told on. me that I should have gone bottom to top, but I figure when you're in the weeds, it doesn't really matter. So yeah, well, you know, starting at the top basically means you're getting the heavy hitters out of the way, and then you're getting. Yeah. What arguably might be more interesting and intriguing stuff as you get relatively yeah. more obscure. So, well, yeah, that's great. We shall see. All right. Well, well, we'll keep on going with that. So, well, yeah. So let's just talk a little bit about wrap up. So, Lady P, tell tell us where people can find you if they haven't discovered Flixwise. Please put it on your subscribe list and uh, get caught up uh, even even more so than I am because I <laughs> I had the order of things <laughs> because yeah you, you you I know you do a number of I think you've done a couple different episodes forty two or forty three because of the the ties on the site yeah exactly yeah <laughs> so yeah tell us just a little bit about how to find you and how to connect with what you're doing there. Yeah, yeah. It's uh the website is flixwise dot com. Um and you can subscribe on iTunes, please do. Um I'm on Tumblr and I am on Twitter at Flixwise. So that's generally if you want to find me, that's generally the best way to do it. Um but yeah, please listen. I love I love hearing feedback, so I welcome it. And yeah, any suggestions for greatest movies of all time, very open to suggestions. Yeah, well I definitely look forward to my next uh drop in on the Flixwise podcast, Lady Absolutely. Pizza. And uh, maybe we'll even have you back. We could do some more stuff uh, with Criterion Cast, with the Eclipse Viewer. Uh, really enjoy this connection that we've made. So thank you very Absolutely. much for making time out of your, your uh, Passover holiday weekend for yes. us. Thanks thank for you. joining. You bet. <laughs> thank you so much. Yes, thank you. All right. Hey, Trevor, you got any updates you want to give to our listeners before we sign off? No, no. I I, I think people know where to find me now. Um, at Mooks, <laughs> yeah. M-O-O-K-S-E. Yeah, we're, we're yeah. Here, right? <laughs> I'll, be ne- I'll be back next month. Um, obviously, we'll, yes. we'll keep on working on our personal projects. I'm, you know, getting through the Kennedy, the um, Kennedy Drew set that uh, Criterion is releasing this week. And I even got a copy of the new Brief Encounter standalone release, which I already have the box set. But so I'll be dipping into to that lovely film again um, to to kind of commemorate its release in this in this particular uh, edition. Um, but yeah, other than that, just uh, looking forward to to all that's to come still. We've got good plans. Excellent. Well, we have, speaking of plans, our next episode is going to be, uh, the May episode will be Alexander Corda's Private Lives. That's Ooh. Eclipse Series 16, going back to some of those great old uh, kind of London films from the yeah. mid early to mid-1930s, uh, Private Life of Henry VIII, The Rise of Catherine the Great, The Private Life of Don Juan and Rembrandt. So, yeah, we are, you know, Trevor and I just had a little uh, chat the other day kind of offline about uh you know where we're going with our with our podcast here and we've got some some really big episodes in in the near future but we're gonna i, I think the Cordis private lives is actually relatively speaking one of the lighter sets uh but we're gonna enjoy um kind of a change of pace a little bit uh, talk about you know switching from chantal ackerman and her stark uh structuralist minimalism to uh some pretty rollicking uh yeah. historical comedy biographies uh 
it's a it's a just a nice uh, example uh, of the the diversity and the and the range of the eclipse series so uh, i'll yeah. i'll look forward to uh digging into those uh in the next few weeks so yeah well thank you everybody for listening in we do welcome your feedback as well uh thanks again lady p uh we uh, look forward to connecting again down the road and uh, for now we'll just be signing off uh, thank you for listening in and we'll see you in may bye-bye <laughs>